came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves Radio waves Radio waves She sees radio waves She sees radio waves Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 20th of June. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. In this episode we are speaking with observational cosmologist Dr. Anais Merler, who is working with the Dark Energy Science Collaboration attached to the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. We were lucky enough to catch up with Anais when she was visiting here in Australia. So let's cross to that interview right now. Hello, Anais. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Today we are very honoured to be speaking with Venezuelan-born astrophysicist Dr. Anais Merla, who is an observational cosmologist who researches the effect of dark energy in our universe by finding and using data from Type 1a supernova. And Anais is currently based in France and is part of a team who are the science drivers of the Dark Energy Science Collaboration attached to the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is under construction at Cerro Pachon on the Andes Mountains of northern Chile. Hello, everybody. Very happy to be here. Excellent. So before we talk about your supernova research in the Dark Energy Science Collaboration and the LSST, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Anais? And tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. Well, I grew up in Venezuela, which is in South America, Latin American country. In Venezuela, I guess science is not that important usually, but I was always very curious as a kid. And I was also always asking myself questions and doing little experiments. Like I remember once I hit <laughs> like a jello, a container, like a Tupperware with some jello so I can see how fungus grew. <laughs> so I did a lot of crazy experiments when I was a kid. So I was very interested in science, but I didn't even think that that could be my future, actually. Okay, great. So 
Please tell us a little about your school days in Venezuela and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Well, when I was a kid, as I told you, I was super curious. I didn't have the best grades in school. So I think that's a little bit out of the stereotypes. And I wanted to understand things. And I had a small telescope, but I wasn't very thorough with it. I enjoyed talking about space, learning new things, but I also enjoyed learning about many other things, like biology or chemistry or even engineering, how things work. So that's how I wanted to be curious in my life. Now, the ambitions, I wasn't very sure what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I changed every couple of months (laughs) of a subject that I wanted to follow, but I just followed what interested me. Fantastic way to go. Thanks, Anais. So after your successful school career, you completed your undergraduate degree in Venezuela and then your master's and PhD up in Paris. That's a great study trajectory. Can you tell us the highlights of this journey, please? Well, I started my undergrad in Venezuela. Venezuela system is a little bit different than in other countries. So you have the undergrad, it's actually a five-year degree, which is very long for some people, but you usually have a five-year program that you will follow all the way through, and you cannot stop and get a degree before that. When I entered university, I didn't know what I wanted to be, actually. So I applied to engineering, so I was doing materials engineering, and I started studying that. And while I was there a year and a half after I started the university, I realized that that was not what I wanted to do in life and decided to change to FESTEX, which was a very weird thing to do in Venezuela. Imagine you come for a five-year degree and you're telling a department, I'm going to change to FESTEX. And the people there are like, why? (laughs) (laughs) That was the reaction I had, actually. But I decided to pursue FESTEX and try it out. I must say that during my university, I wasn't the best student. And I was very interested in many other things. So I did a lot of social studies organizations. And I was a member of the student newspaper. Did a lot of things that were not like model United Nations, which are not at all what you think a scientist will be doing. But I just like pursue different things and enjoy it. Also, regarding once I changed the physics, I changed a lot. So I started doing like plasma physics and then theoretical physics. So I actually like to drift a little bit and see what is around. Fantastic. What a broad range of interests. So you began in the Southern Hemisphere, then up north for your master's and PhD, then down south again for a few years as a Castro postdoctoral research fellow with the SkyMapper team at the Australian National University. How did this come about? And what a great opportunity to work in Brian Schmidt's team. Can you give us a quick overview of your work on the DES survey, please? And like the who, the why and the how, and what did you discover in a nutshell? Wow, this is a super loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to cover here. So I started... My undergrad in Venezuela, then did my master's and PhD in France. And actually, I wanted to tell you a little story about how I ended up in France, because it's very random. 
So I finished my undergrad in Venezuela, and somehow I met a professor that was Venezuelan origin that was living in France. And through that connection, I got actually an internship to do particle physics, like LHC Atlas experiment. So we were looking at the Higgs to Gamma Gamma, which is before the Higgs boson was discovered. So I ended up in France doing uh, an internship, which opened the door to a master's. And then I stayed in my PhD, which is, I think it's a little bit of a randomness in the world, how you end up in some places sometimes. So once I finished my PhD, I had a collaborator in Australia. And I mentioned I was looking for a postdoc, and somehow I got connected with the SkyMapper team and branched me. And they were searching for somebody that actually knew how to work with pipelines. So what happens is when you work with pipelines, you, you know how to get data from the telescope, reduce it, and then get the analysis for the science. And this is something that has many, many, many parts. It's quite a, a game. And I got offered that job, ended up in Australia, working with SkyMapper, Dark Energy Survey, and Austis, which is the Australian Dark Energy Survey counterpart. So this is a, a big job. SkyMapper is a small telescope in Setting Spring Observatory here in Australia that is actually doing a lot of things, including a survey of the southern sky, but it's also at this time, it was also looking for supernova or things that are changing in the sky. So when I arrived, I started playing with this telescope, trying to find Type 1A supernova, which is the one that used to study dark energy, and also looking at other things in the sky, other supernova or maybe the kilonova that was an electromagnetic counterpart for the gravitational wave event. So many things that we can look with the telescope. But this is very close by. So this is what we call a low redshift or nearby supernova. This was part of my job, but the other part was also working with the DES survey, which does high redshift supernova. So if you can imagine, I had the nearby and the far away supernova covered in this job. And the idea in the DES survey, it's also a telescope, actually in Chile, in Blanco Telescope and using BigHam. This telescope was imaging one-eighth of the sky. And some of these fields was like very frequent, so we can find supernova. So it was a five-year program, which we ended last year. And we were covering something a little bit more than 10 moons, full moons, when we were looking at the sky. Yep. And finding Type 1A supernova or other supernova um, to study the expansion of the universe. And this way, we can actually figure out a little bit more what could be dark energy, which is the major component in the universe, but we don't know what it is. So I guess my job during these last years has been finding things close by, trying to understand those type 1A supernova or where do they come from, the other things that are up in the transient sky, and also trying to figure out with high redshift type 1A supernova what is actually producing this expansion of the universe as we know it right now. That is awesome. So right now there's a lot of debate 
about the Hubble constant, about dark energy, and how accurately we can measure the accelerating universe. What's the current state of play? Well, at the end of the 1990s, with supernova measurements, we found out that the universe was expanding faster than we it would be. But the, the simplest explanation for this, if general relativity is okay, is that it's dark energy. Since then, we have passed from a handful of uh, type 1 supernova, or tens of uh, type 1 supernova, to hundreds of them. And we're trying to understand really how these supernova work and how we can really constrain that expansion of the universe. So I guess we have passed from some tens of type 1a supernova to hundreds right now. And that's what we have done with the Dark Energy Survey, which we released the results last year, actually. Now, because we have already hundreds of supernova 1a, we're proving in different distances, but we're also limited now, not by statistics, not by the number of supernova, but how good our measurements are. And I think that's the, the current state of the play. Right now, what we want is to measure these type 1a supernova light curves more precisely and understand them better. So I think one of the main points is that one. It's not the quantity anymore. It's how good they are. And the other side is, we have centered a lot in this high redshift Type 1A supernova, which is exactly what we probe for the cosmic expansion. But because we now need to understand the errors, we have a lot of debate in the nearby, close-by Type 1A supernova. Because if we cannot understand good enough the nearby, how can we become super precise in the far away? And I think that's the biggest um, controversy right now with the Hubble constant and how to calibrate the supernova. Fantastic. Thank you for clearing that up. Now, that leads beautifully into this next question. So you've published many papers since your doctorate, and let's look at a recent one from January this year, Super Nova, an open source framework for Bayesian neural network-based supernova classification. In this, you describe how you and your colleague have achieved 99% accuracy in classifying supernova in large data sets by using machine learning and Bayesian probability. When even optical instruments now are generating more than a terabyte a day, it looks like you've provided a novel solution to one of the big data problems that is besetting astrophysics. Can you tell us about this, please? Yes, of course. I'm pretty excited about this work, actually. So we already know that we have hundreds of supernova right now with the DES survey. Yep. But those 100 supernova is not everything that we have. That's the ones that actually got a spectroscopic follow-up, which is a thorough follow-up that you have to do within a time window. But even the dark energy survey has a lot of data. And to exploit this data, it will be better if we are not restricted by this time window. So that's basically this paper that I published this year is talking about. How can we get more information from the data that we get from telescopes. 
And for that, we're using machine learning, which is a fancy word saying we're teaching the computer to actually select the supernova that are interesting. And we're trying to select them in a very efficient way, not only because of the numbers, we want the high accuracy, high purity, but also we want it fast because the future telescopes that we will talk uh, shortly about will generate so much data that we cannot handle it in real time. But also one of the big things is because our analyses are getting more and more precise, we need to take more into account statistics. And that's where Bayesian probability enters. We're trying to understand a little bit more the statistics behind selecting supernova with a machine learning algorithm. So it's actually open source. If people are curious how a astronomy or astrophysics program looks like, you can actually go to the GitHub, download the program and play with it. Um, there's also the data is available. So if you are keen to do that, more than happy that people play with it. That is so awesome. And that leads beautifully on to this question. You mentioned new telescopes. I can see why you've been recruited into the Dark Energy Science Collaboration with the LSST. And I see that you have over 900 members from 15 countries and quite a few papers already published with this collaboration. Could you tell our listeners a little about the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope? What is it? Where is it? What will it do? And can you tell us about the work that you are doing with the Dark Energy Science Collaboration? Absolutely. So the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, is a new and brand new telescope that is being built actually in Chile. And if we can compare it with the telescopes I spoke before, which, for example, a Blanco, which has the DES survey that was a four meter telescope. Here we're talking about an 8.4 meter telescope. So more than double the size of a telescope. Yep. Not only is it a huge telescope, it's dedicated to do a survey of the southern sky over 10 years, 10 years looking at the southern skies, which is actually amazing. And every time we point that telescope to the sky, we're uh, looking or imaging an area of more than 40 full moons. So this is huge. So all the amount of data we're going to get, we're going to get over 15 terabytes of data every night. Ooh. So imagine that. Yeah. So basically, you're mapping the whole southern sky with a brand new state-of-the-art telescope. And we're trying to figure out a lot of things. Now, I am part of a dark energy science collaboration that, as the name shows, we're interested in dark energy. So we want to know what is dark energy and how we can know this is we need to understand the effect it's having in our universe. And for that, you can have it with different probes, like um, large-scale structure, how the galaxies are distributed, um, with lensing, but also with supernova which is my favorite topic, as you may have noticed. And we're going to find, according to the stats, 30,000 good samples at 1A supernova. So from some thousand that we got in the DES survey, or the dark energy survey, we get an order of magnitude more, at least, interesting at 1A supernova. So that's exactly what I'm interested in LSSD, 
And my role in this project is actually using what we know from the current state-of-the-art analysis, like the Dark Energy Survey, how can we prepare and be ready to explore the data that LSST will provide? And part of it is actually, I just started actually pretty recently in this job, but we're looking at brokers. If you get 15 terabytes of data every night, you will have so many possible things that are changing with time in the sky, possible supernova. How do you choose which ones are the interesting ones to do a spectroscopic follow-up or continue watching or is this something completely new? So this is something I'm very interested in working on is how do we do this in real time and get best science output from it for dark energy? Fantastic. Thanks, Zanos. So the LSST sounds awesome. We're going to learn so much about the southern skies. Now, the microphone is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, or science denialism, or career paths, or equity, or diversity, or our quest for new knowledge, or even science outreach. The microphone's all yours. Oh, this is a huge thing. This is a great opportunity, but also a little bit intimidating what I can say is, if you're interested in a science career path, just be curious, just enjoy the path. I think every detour, or every weird idea I followed during my path has brought me here. And I have learned a lot from them, from my work in particle physics to cosmology to plasma physics. They are all part of my research now, maybe not directly, but I think being curious is something that you need to enjoy. And that's for the science career path. Now, uh, about science denialism, oh, that's a tough one, but I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> I think sometimes people believe that we have a kind of a faith in science, and I think it's that we trust the scientific method. We trust the process that we go through. And I think that's something that we should be discussing in schools and in the universities and at all levels. I'm talking about primary schools or high schools. How do we construct an hypothesis? How do we prove it wrong or right? How do we take evidence and weight it? Because we have so much information nowadays at our disposition. How do we put it in, in the big puzzle of science or the universe? And I think this is something that I would love to see more represented in public discussions, in the social life that we have right now, and also in schools. Fantastic. Thank you, Anais. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Oh, I'm keeping my eye on in too many things. Um, definitely, if you're interested in astrophysics, in the contents of the universe, keep an eye for LSST. We're going to be having so much data, so many interesting things to share. Also about technology, because this is an experiment that involves so much data. We'll be developing new methods of actually looking at that data and figuring out things. And I think that's super interesting to do. So keep an eye on that. Also keep an eye on what we call time domain astronomy. 
things are changing in the sky because it's not only about supernova. It's also about, for example, the LIGO detects a gravitational wave and then we point the telescope somewhere to see if we can see what produced that gravitational wave. I think that's something interesting to keep an eye on and it's very new and a lot of advances will be happening soon. So if you're interested, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of information to watch out in the near future. Yes, indeed. It's very exciting times. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Anais Muller. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks for your time. And we'll encourage all listeners to follow Anais on Twitter. She does fabulous posts as at Anais underscore Muller. That's at A-N-A-I-S underscore M-O-L-L-E-R on Twitter. And for researchers, she shares her code up on GitHub. So go get it. So cool. Thanks, Anais. Thank you, Brandon. Very good. Bye now. Bye. And now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Ian, Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again. How are you, Ian? Oh, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. It's a busy week coming up with the forensics conference that I'm supposed to be speaking at tomorrow. I hope that goes very well for you. Thank you very much. So, Ian, can you tell us... What's up, Doc, in the sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? We're going to see some interesting things. Of course, the scene stealers will be Jupiter and Saturn. I'll come to them in a moment. Our friends Mercury and Mars are visible low in the western horizon about an hour after sunset. Mars is, is relatively dim, and after the experience of Mars being the brightest object in the sky, the faint ember that is Mars is now being outshone by Mercury, which is above it. Mercury is rising reasonably high above the horizon to continue to rise above Mars as Mars sinks lower in the west. And the, the pair will be visible quite nicely through the next fortnight as we watch, although, again, it's best if you have a level horizon with few objects in the way and we'll be able to pick the pair to get up together. At the end of our, um, our, our broadcast period, on July the 4th, the crescent moon uh, meets up with Mars and Mercury. But the crescent moon's very close to Mars. And if you happen to be in um, uh, Asia Minor or the Arabian Peninsula, you'll see uh, Mars being occulted by the moon, which will be quite interesting to watch. Here in Australia, it should be close enough to get some nice uh, photographs of it if you have a telescope that can travel low enough to the horizon to be able to pick the pair up together. And, of course, Mercury will be above the, uh, the pair of the, of the thin crescent moon and Mars, making an excellent triangle. So it will be a very nice object to finish off this fortnight's period to watch. Uh, so, of course, uh, Jupiter is past opposition, but still wonderful to watch. Sitting underneath Scorpio at the moment, it's highest a little bit before midnight, around about 11 o'clock and will continue to dominate the evening sky for this fortnight. It will be very easy to, uh, to pick up. I went out and had a look at Jupiter tonight. It's looking magnificent up there near the moon. Yeah, it's uh, certainly looking very nice tonight. Of course, Jupiter looks best in telescopes, and the great red spot is still hanging in there. 
although there are still streams of material seem to be coming off it. So it's still an open question whether or not the Great Red Spot will completely unravel or whether it will remain in a somewhat diminished form over the next years to come. Uh, and of course, Jupiter's moons are always a delight. Um, you'll be able to see them shuttling backwards and forwards, going in and out of eclipses and moving across Jupiter's face quite easily, even in uh, binoculars. And Jupiter's moons are bright enough to be seen by themselves. So if Jupiter wasn't there, you should in theory be able to see Jupiter's moons shining dimly as third or fourth magnitude stars. There's a chance coming up on July the 2nd where the moon Callisto will be far enough from Jupiter that if you hide Jupiter behind a heavy object like a wall or a tree or something like that, you might be able to glimpse Callisto on the northern side of Jupiter. You might want to find the binoculars first, then try and locate it once you've got the Jupiter safely hidden behind some heavy object. Saturn, of course, is coming to its own, and by the end of our um, recording session, Saturn will be approaching opposition. It will be in opposition in the fortnight after, but uh, at the moment, it's uh, approaching opposition quite nicely. Uh, The uh, rings are looking very beautiful, and it's a, a delightful sight in any small telescope. And of course, uh, both uh, Jupiter and Saturn are visible most of the night. Jupiter is still visible all night long, so you'll see it uh, rising just uh, around uh, sunset and uh, setting uh, just just before sunrise. Uh, Saturn is uh, still uh, visible uh, best in the morning skies, although as coming up to opposition, you've now got some very good window of opportunity in the evening although the best views are in the early morning. And we're about to say goodbye to Venus. Now, Venus has been dominating our morning skies for some time now. Venus is still present in the morning sky, but it's getting lower and lower in the twilight. And uh, in uh, in this fortnight, we're going to lose Venus into the twilight globe. Our last chance to observe it uh, is effectively on the 2nd of July, when the Venus and the thin crescent moon uh, are visible half an hour before sunrise, very low in the twilight. Uh, you will definitely need a flat level horizon, something like a desert or a uh, ocean to view this. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be on. Good night, mate. Good night. Here is the Astrophys News for Thursday the 20th of June 2019. First up, via a press release from the University of Bath, UK, published yesterday on Wednesday the 19th of June. Astronomers make first detection of polarised radio waves in gamma-ray burst jets. Good fortune and cutting-edge scientific equipment have allowed scientists to observe a gamma-ray burst jet with a radio telescope and detect the polarisation of radio waves within it for the first time, moving us closer to an understanding of what causes the universe's most powerful explosions. Gamma-ray bursts, GRBs, are the most energetic explosions in the universe, beaming out mighty jets which travel through space at over 99.9% 
the speed of light as a star much more massive than our sun collapses at the end of its life to produce a black hole. Studying the light from GRB jets as we detect it travelling across space is our best hope of understanding how these powerful jets are formed. But scientists need to be quick to get their telescopes into position to get the best data. This research team from the University of Bath, Northwestern University, the Open University of Israel, Harvard University, California State University in Sacramento, and the Max Planck Institute in Garching, Germany, and Liverpool John Moores University, discovered that only 0.8% of a jet light was polarised, meaning that jet's magnetic field was only ordered over relatively small patches, each less than about 1% of the diameter of the jet. Larger patches would have produced more polarised light. These measurements suggest that magnetic fields may play a less significant structural role in GRB jets than previously thought. First author, Dr. Tamoy Laska from the University of Bath said, We want to understand why some stars produce these extraordinary jets when they die and the mechanism by which these jets are fueled, the fastest known outflows in the universe, moving at speeds close to that of light and shining with the incredible luminosity of over a billion suns combined. Well, kudos to the research team. Next, from the Max Planck Institute and the German space agency DLR, a new set of eyes heads for space. A massive piece of kit called the Extenden Rodgen Survey with an imaging telescope array called E. Rosita X-ray telescope is currently being attached to a spacecraft called the Spectrum Ronchen Gamma, the SRG, set to be launched from the Kazakh steppes any day now. The launch mission is a project of the German space agency DLR, and SRG is expected to travel about 1.5 million kilometres from Earth until it reaches a stable position of equilibrium between Earth and the Sun, known as a Lagrange point. Once there, it will deploy Erosita and other onboard instruments to observe the entire sky and search for and map galaxy clusters, active black holes, supernova remnants, X-ray binaries and neutron stars. Okay, that's the launch. Here's the science. Erosita will be the primary instrument on board the Spectrum Rochum Gamma and it's being launched from Belkinur and placed in the L2 orbit. Erosita is the primary instrument. It will perform the first imaging all-sky survey in the medium-energy X-ray band up to 10 keV with an unprecedented spectral and angular resolution. The nature of the mysterious dark energy, which is driving the universe apart, is one of the most exciting questions facing astronomy and physics today. It could be the vacuum energy corresponding to the cosmological constant in Einstein's theory of general relativity, or it could be 
a time-varying energy field. Answering this question could be the starting point of a fundamental revolution in physics. Clusters of galaxies are the largest collapsed objects in the universe. Their formation and evolution is dominated by gravity, i.e. dark matter, while their large-scale distribution and number density depends on the geometry of the universe, i.e. dark energy. X-ray observations of clusters of galaxies provide information on the rate of expansion of the universe, the fraction of mass in visible matter, and the amplitude of primordial fluctuations, which are the origin of clusters of galaxies and the whole structure of the universe. So good luck for that mission. We'll see that in coming days, weeks, months, and the science will come pouring in. Finally, from the SETI Institute and Breakthrough Listen. The largest data set in SETI history has been released to the public. Breakthrough Listen, the program searching for signs of intelligent life in the universe, and it's certainly not here on planet Earth, has submitted two publications to leading astrophysics journals, describing the analysis of its first three years of radio observations and the availability of a petabyte of radio and optical telescope data. Breakthrough Listen is performing detailed observations of a sample of 1,702 nearby stars within about 160 light-years from Earth. They're using the Green Bank Radio Telescope, the GBT, in West Virginia, and CSIRO's Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. In addition, exploration of a wide swathe of our galaxy's disk is underway at Parkes. Observations of a 1 million star sample will soon commence at the Meerkat Telescope in South Africa. Lick Observatory's Automated Planet Finder, the APF, is being used to search for optical signals. The data sets examined in the analysis paper are now publicly available through the Breakthrough Listen Open Data Archive and also through a beta interface hosted by the BSRC, which provides access to the same data sets but with additional search options. In addition to the GBT and Parks data, the archive also contains data from our observations of FRB 121102, the first repeating fast radio burst detected. Scans of interstellar asteroid our Muamua and a trove of optical data from Lick's APF. Together, these amount to almost one petabyte of publicly available data, the equivalent of around 1,600 years of streaming audio from your favourite online music service. A description of the data formats, the analysis tools and archival system can be found in a second new paper submitted for publication by the Breakthrough Listen team, led by Matt Libovsky. I'd suggest if you want to chase down that data and do your own pipeline analysis and discover fantastic aliens, 
then go to Breakthrough Listen. They'll point you in the right direction. Also, you might want to do a search for Matt Libovsky. Okay, that's Astrophys for this episode. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.